0: As-salamu and welcome to this week's edition to Pathway to Peace, a live show which takes a look at the current issues and trends affecting us all, trying to find the answers to problems that affect our political peace, economic peace, social peace and perhaps the noblest of them all, inner peace. Global poverty is one of the most pr- pressing problems that the world faces today. The poorest in the world are often undernourished, without access to basic services such as electricity and safe drinking water, They have less access to education and suffer from much poorer health. The aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, coupled with the situation in Ukraine, has exposed further growing inequalities. That's why in this week's episode has been titled Achieving Economic Peace, Illuminating Hearts Through Compassion. My name is Kaleem Wanwar and I'm joined by fellow Pathway to Peace presenter Arif Khan to attempt to dissect this topic and its many encompassing issues. So salaam a warm welcome to Welcome, slam, peace be upon you. Um it's been a while since uh since this collaboration is has.
1: Uh, looking forward to it.
0: <laughs> obviously stepping in uh for our for our dear friend Trofyan who's out in the States at the moment. Um and hope he's um hopefully he's listening in life. Um, sure he will be. He wouldn't <laughs> want to miss out. But um but obviously this is off the yeah, you, yeah, well this is um I suppose the this thinking behind this sort of this show around um, looking after sort of the, those less fortunate in society, really the backdrop to this is actually comes from the concluding address of His Holiness, uh, Hazrat Misa Masuram, the fifth caliph of the Muslim community, which was basically in his sort of final closing address of, of this year's annual convention. It only happened almost two, two weekends ago now. Um, the whole speech was sort of dedicated to that. I mean, that. And that sort of really is the sort of the, the main reason why was of doing this show because it was a fascinating speech uh, at which we're going to sort of delve into the detail uh, in the latter half of this show. Um, I think what was really interesting, uh, without sort of without sort of revealing the bits of the of the speech to begin with, um, but I thought what was quite interesting is that His Holiness, at the beginning of the speech, mentioned the fact that, um, if I sort of quote from the speech, he had detailed the rights of twenty-one mm. sections of society yeah. for which Islam establishes many rights. Yeah. Um, and this was actually, so this is a sort of continuation, a, a continuation of last year's concluding address. Mm. And I was just thinking, you know, 21 sort of you know, what's it, demographics of yep. society. I mean, that that that's
1: that mind blowing, isn't it? If you think back yeah. as well, I remember his only, I remember, I have a very vivid memory of the first time we went for Jalsa after the pandemic. Right. Um, and finally it was opened up again. Only, and remember you could only go one day. Yes. There's only one day available. And I just remember sitting and listening to, yeah. The addresses then His Holiness first of all spoke a lot about. One of the days highlighted the role between uh, husband and wife, the rights for husband yeah. and wife between each other. Yeah. And then in the I remember then in later addresses he he then focused on different areas of society. I remember the feedback from those in the room and afterwards were we were we had no idea that Islam gave such a comprehensive teaching. So. Right from the ones that I remember vividly stood out for me was rights of parents, right, the relationship yes. between parents and children and yeah. orphans as well. If you remember, orphans was another area where he gave quite a lot of detail. And also in his Friday sermons, he spoke about these different areas. But yeah. even despite the multiple years we've yeah. had this theme, yeah. his holiness highlighted that when, you know, we have, we are barely scratching the surface because Islam has yeah. highlighted such in, in such amazing detail, yeah. so many different demographics and specific ways to, yeah. you know, to help them and how it's a part of faith.
0: It, I, and it, I just, I'll just be honest, it makes me think, I think that's a show in its own right, really, to sort of look at maybe all of those yep. um, sort of categories, um, maybe, you know, at a, at a later date. But in this particular show, we're focusing on, on the sort of those less fortunate in society, mm-hmm. the, the poor and the needy, um, and what the Islamic sort of perspective or sort of solutions are in sort of managing or sort of how to bring about a more sort of a positive change within society. In the first half of the show, though, I suppose we want to look more about sort of what's happening and um, some sort of facts and figures, sort of raw sort of information, really, that sort of just hits home just how acute this problem is. It's some, some stats here I've got from the worldvision.org website uh, around global poverty, and it says, and I think these are sort of stats as that sort of 2022, and it says 719 million people, that's 9.2 of the world's population, are living on less than $2.15 a day. Um, children children, and youth account for two thirds of the world's poor and uh, women represent a majority in most regions um, it states extreme poverty is largely concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa um, which I know in previous shows sort of we've talked about um, it is a shame how even the continent of Africa pretty much the last have even received the vaccine so it's quite, it is sad that you know, it, it doesn't come as a surprise to the issues that are being affected there Um it says 24% of the world's population, which equates to 1.9 billion people, live in fragile contexts, characterised by impoverished conditions and dire circumstances. Um, and then it says by 2030, more than, the ha- more than half of the world's poor will live in these fragile contexts. Um, and it says here, um, it, gives, it gives some sort of definitions around what exactly is poverty. And it says poverty is a state of deprivation in which people or communities lack access to resources, basic necessities needed to live a healthy and dignified life. Um, living in poverty means not being being able to afford medical care or access to basics such as electricity, shelter, and food. Um, and and it says it does state, for example, because I think a lot of sociologists do sort of do sort of debate and talk about what what exactly is the sort of the poverty line and things like that um it says historically poverty has been calculated based on a person's income and how much they can buy um there are sort of various other sort of metrics um this notion of uh, extreme poverty the world bank has defined extreme poverty as people living on less than $2.15 a cent a day um this is using the international poverty line um uh, but it says uh, and, and even, even sort of that can be subdivided. Extreme poverty is identified in two ways. There's absolute poverty and relative poverty. The difference between the two, uh, absolute poverty is when a person cannot afford the basics such as food, shelter and clothing. Uh, re- relative poverty is a household income below a certain percentage, typically 50 or 60% of the country's median income. I do remember that actually when I was um, back in um, college days, when I. Was Studying mainly for sociology, yep. and I think, I think this is probably back into when we were looking at sort of, sort of Bevin's sort of you know, foundations for, for 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 the National Health Service and sort of a welfare state, mm-hmm. and and even things like it was sort of deemed, if if you if a, if a family hadn't even gone on a holiday for example within that year, they were deemed to be sort of in poverty, um, which is an interesting notion. Mm-hmm. It just shows how relative it is. The concept of a holiday is, is, is alien when you think people are just living on $2.15 a day.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And I think for me, it's, I feel like we all grow and we learn, right? Let's, let's be really blunt about this. In uh, When we were growing up, Gleam, I can say this. I know you're the same age as me, in the 80s, the 90s. Yep. <laughs> if you were to ask about poverty and famine, right, what's the immediate image that comes to your mind?
0: Are you thinking um, live aid? What would you see? That? Yeah, live aid. And, Africa, and what yeah. kind of
1: Africa? Africa? Yeah youngsters, yeah. young people and desert, you know. Yeah. So I think whether deliberately or just based on the things around us, I think I, I probably grew up with a view that poverty yeah. is because it's too hot to grow food in Africa yeah. and we have a lot of people living there yeah. and they have a lot of children and the population is too big to be sustained and it's just, you know, there's natural naturally it's too hot, it's not the right conditions and I can't believe how wrong I am basically in those I think when you take a step back and you look at the world overall, the, this view that it's overpopulated yeah. and that population's out of control, and actually it's just completely wrong because a third of all the food processed in the world is thrown away. Yeah. just stop and, and also I think as also as a, uh, I've grown up, certainly, when I've looked at countries like Africa or India, and I, yeah. I know someone um, a doctor who went to Africa, and then he went to India, and he said, in India, I saw more poverty than I, I saw when I was in Africa. Right. Um, and if you look at why. You have a very different you know, if you start to look at history, yeah, how did we actually get into the situation, et cetera. And I'm not going to make this, you know we're not going to go down the politics of how that happened, but yeah. there's there's a reason why. Then you start to realize actually if if the reason why there's poverty in these places is to do with the behavior is to do with politics, is to do with the you know different empires, then actually the pro- way to solve this is not something about you know growing more amounts of food. It's a political thing that needs to come in to try and solve some of these issues. The root cause yeah. of a lot of these problems. Uh, because of the way these regions have been used over the you know historically yeah. um, you know whether it's like I said where Africa's natural resources, it's people, it's yeah. actual people as well literally removed from there or also the you know the British Empire and others in in India and the way India was utilized as a way to you know fund, um, activities in the rest of the world, how money was taken out directly. So I think I've started to view it differently. So now that same narrative is true in the UK. You know, there's a view sometimes people think it's about, yeah. you know, people maybe not working hard enough or something. But if you look at the, yeah. there's there's actually a cycle, and His Holiness has spoken about this as well. It's like yeah. you need to break that cycle. That What you just outlined about, you know the earnings and then having somewhere to live and then having you know being able to go on holiday yeah. and then you know think about the mental break that gives you and the happiness and that then feeds back into your family life etc yeah. whereas if you're in a impoverished situation that puts strain on the family maybe leads to divorce and things like this it's yeah. a much harder environment so yeah. actually it's interesting how even from the outset people might think poverty is um you know a an issue that is Yeah, that we can't really do much about. It's just the way people are born, etc. Actually, there's so you can see it's to do with how people behave, how governments behave, how society behaves, as well as the you know as we'll get onto you know the welfare state. How does that provide properly for for the people?
0: It's a good point you raise because, and and even like like more so than ever before, it's this has become a really sort of close to home issue now. Within the basically essentially since post the post pandemic the situation obviously in ukraine um you know it's just having a massive effect obviously with supply chains and 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 as a result sort of the cost of 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 goods obviously naturally has gone sky high people basically it's becoming very obvious now it's it's literally hurting people's pockets um and it's becoming a a sort of a hot topic now the Mm -hmm. government has to sort of deal with this um you know, and, and 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 no doubt the the sort of the government after next will also have to deal with this as well. It's there's, there's so much, you know, happening on a daily basis now, to, and 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 as a result, and and I'm sure we sort of sort of talk about this later on in the show, but it's having impacts on on, you know, the, the, as a result, the the number of strikes that are happening sure. across the sectors, it's 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 just beginning to affect all sectors, all spheres within society like like never before. Um, yeah, it's a cop yeah. <laughs> a picture of a sort of doom and gloom there. No, totally. actually. Sure, yeah. I,
1: I think one thing as well. Let's make it real. Like I, we spoke about India, Africa, as if you know this is a problem in the far east. Yeah. Look at the UK. This is it. Proper like this poverty is it. increasing hugely yeah. in the UK as well. Yeah. Like now some of it is to do with inflation, etc. But it's been yeah. it's been an issue long before that. Yeah. Um, you know, I was looking at some statistics about in poverty in terms of the UK and how that's. That is also increasing as well. There's, um, yeah. you know, after you include housing costs and the cost of children, it's the relative income left after that is, is a real problem. It's becoming people have less and less money available, and yeah. uh, to them to be able to spend. So the number in poverty is is increasing, and sadly, yeah. like we know this from a first hand experience. You know, uh, Humanity First, the aid based charity, yeah. they they have opened up food banks yeah. you know there's one in murfield in Yorkshire. why why do they, food banks even exist yeah. it's to do with this it's, and again the uk is one of the biggest you know um, has one of the highest gdp's probably in the top 5 i think in the world yet yeah. even in those countries even in america there's a lot of areas of um, you know de- deprivation and and it's so it's to do with the distribution it comes down to this the money's there in the country you have these huge economies that are generating money, yeah. yet there's people living on the poverty line, as you mentioned, less than $2 a day. Something is is not right in terms of the way that's redistributed.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, and that's, uh, this is the key principle, of redistribution of wealth, Um, which sort of leads us on to sort of this, the second part of this show, really, that obviously week in, week out, when we do the Pathway to Peace show, you know, whatever the given issues are of, of the day or, you know, various problems that are affecting society as, as a whole. What exactly is the Islamic perspective on this and sort of how to sort of deal with that? Um, and this, and hence why the theme of this week really is around sort of attaining economic peace because unlike any other sort of holy scripture um, pre, you know, prior to the Holy Quran, um, the Holy Quran has, it's gone there. It's, it's, it has delved into the realm of economics, um, which some may say is quite, strange for, for for a religious scripture to do that but i think that just sort of that just shows really that's the proof um in the fact that a book that has been revealed by the by humanity's creator you know the creator of all he knows us best essentially he knows our our, our very our, our psychology the way we behave uh, you know the way we are to 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 the way we sort of behave in sort of the in the sphere in the sphere of, sort of economics, you know so why why wouldn't a scripture sort of address these principles um which in this segment then we'll I'll, I'll sort of draw upon some um notions from the there's a book uh which has been printed uh, it was a sp- previously known as a speech but it's been printed in book form as the new world order of islam um and it was it was actually a, an address delivered by the second caliph of the amdi muslim community Hazrat Mirza Bashir Mahmoud ahmed um it was actually interestingly enough. There's a bit of a theme going on here. Sorry, I just, I'm just sorry, I've just twigged something. I mean, towards the end of this show, we're going to reflect on the final, the concluding address of His Holiness, the fifth Caliph, around um, uh, you know how sort of Islam sort of deals with you know looking after the rights of the poor and needy. This this speech, the new mm-hmm. world order, of, or what has been sort of later titled as the new world order of Islam, was actually uh, a speech delivered by the second Caliph likewise at the annual gathering right. interesting i didn't um, know that
1: i've not had that book on my shelf for a long time and i've read it but i didn't yeah. know it was from a Jalsa. <laughs> no you know. no
0: every time you pick these books up <laughs> yeah. once in a while you see Literally. a new gem that sort of kind of confronts you and um so this also wasn't it was a speech from 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 a Jalsa salana an annual gathering december 28th 1942 um and in fact the 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 speech primarily addresses the the issue how does i mean the, the true islam proposed uh, propose to deal with the grave problem of socio-economic inequality in the world mm-hmm. um, you, you can't get you know, I mean that is the really is the question of the day and there's a section in here around exactly what you just talked about Arif, around sort of well, what is, the, what is the, the key what is that silver bullet to sort of a, a, a deal with yeah. the redress of, of, um, of wealth equitability um, across society and there are essentially four principles here um, I'll, I'll take each one in turn and maybe we sort of, we'll, we'll just sort of look at each yep. one. The first one is around, um, it's, I guess it's the nature of land and how it says, and a quote from the speech, in, the same caliph says, with this object in view, Islam has put forward four principles and every one of them has been designed to secure more equitable distribution of wealth. And he goes, one of those principles uh, of social inequality is, is due to the accumulation of property and wealth in a few hands. Yeah. So that the common people are deprived of all chances of acquiring property for themselves. So he says here, to deal with this, um, Islam um, compulsory distributes property uh, among a large number of is uh, And on the death of a Muslim, his parents, his widow, sons or daughters all succeed to their shares in the property left by the deceased. Um, nobody's at liberty to modify in any manner the share in which they, e- in, in which each heir is entitled under the system. I, I mean, and so there's a very, there's a verse in the Quran that sort of actually, literally sort of specifies what, what, what percentage, what, yeah, is, yeah, what share goes. Uh, which, like I said, it's quite a very novel. Has not you know no 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 scripture sort of gone there which is quite groundbreaking to say you know
1: yeah and i think also if you look at the the treatment like the idea that women can have their own property for example is is not something that was prevalent in society or taught in other faiths it was islam was very specific about that Mm. um you know about the having to have their own property and also the redistribution i think another i think there's two folds there and i remember having we did a show on a similar topic previously it's one is what does islam mandate as part of almost the economic system from a legal point of view but then it's also what does it encourage people to do as well mm. you know and the emphasis on giving to charity and sharing um, and you know bringing others in if you have cooked a nice meal share it with your neighbors that kind of thing is another layer yeah. of teaching that reinforces that equality and sharing things in you know, in an equal way and property you know the sharing of property or property ownership is often where wealth gets locked in and is only shared with maybe a particular group of people. That's that's a really key place for you to start, because that's often the initial point where the inequality begins is just having somewhere to call home. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. In fact, what you've just said has been been picked up by the author of the speech, where he says, you know, the second caliph goes so much as to say that the Holy Quran says that any attempt to interfere with this system, as in the the actual shares, is sinful. And he that as compared with the Islamic system of inheritance, other systems suffer from various defects. He says under some of them landed properties inherited by the eldest son only. Um, Under others, maybe it's only females. Uh, So you're right. Various other systems have extremes, Uh, you know, give everything to the eldest. Um, But you don't find that um, within the Islamic system. Um, The second principle, he says, secondly, uh, when it comes to sort of dealing with uh, having a sort of a more equitable wealth distribution system, he says Islam forbids the hoarding of money. Yeah. Um, so that is to say, it directs that money should be constantly in circulation. Um, it must either be spent or invested, so that it constantly fulfills its primary object as a means of exchange, and should promote commercial and industrial activity. Um, which, which that in itself is a fascinating point, it's, isn't
1: it? It's a three-hour speech probably yeah. for someone you know with yeah. an economics background to go into. But yeah. no, it's the more you ponder on it, the more you realize the importance, like zakat is is completely different. So yeah. other people have tried to come up with systems. You know, you've got the tax system that we have in this country, for example, income is taxed. Yeah. You have people putting levies on things like certain industries. You know, I yeah. think um, in Europe, uh, I think it was Italy has just introduced a banking levy that, you know, oh, here's one one industry that's making a lot of money. Let's tax them or yeah. or find a way to get a commission or a piece out of that. Yeah. Um and then you other have things like the wealth tax, you know, if you're if you're earning more than a certain amount. But each of those has some yeah. negative issues as well. Yeah. You know, is it is it fair and is it just that one specific industry that you're working, you know, banking, people that have different views of banking, is it fair that just because you're working in a particular industry that you were to be taxed more? Yeah. You know, what about footballer salary? Should we be yeah. taxing them? It, it opens up another, you know, another yeah. things. Yeah. Secondly, um, yes, it's a nice problem to have, but some people might be going, well, why would I want to? Um, expand my business and you know start bringing like why would I want to expand my business because the more I do it you know the more if I do expand my business or if I do earn more I'm paying such a high tax rate at the moment that I'm not incentivized to do it so how do you incentivize growth and if you don't incentivize growth then yeah. you end up having the problem of well those same people that you're trying to say tax are also the job creators of the future That's as it. well yeah. so how do you keep commerce moving and thriving yeah. but at the same time you know you don't you know, you don't impact that. And how do you, how do you keep it equitable as well? Yeah. You know, should, do you want a system where there are millionaires and billionaires? Well, what if someone creates something really revolutionary and it really does transform the world? Is it not fair that they, they should have a certain amount of income coming into that, into that business? Yeah. So all these questions come up when it's pure tax, but the Zagard system is just, like I said, it's, it's uh, I think it's only as we get older, we reflect on it, we look at the, the genius of it, if, you like, if I can use that term, because yeah. it isn't on your wealth. It's on the income that is not used. And when you think about yeah. the issues, you know, the fact, I mean, one of, if I was to summarize inequality in a simplest sentence, I said it to you before the show, it's the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Yeah. Now, yeah. Why, why does that happen? Well, how do the rich get richer? Well, they often have money that is already hoarded up and segregated somewhere and put in an account earning interest. Yeah zakat is the opposite it's the it's the anti-interest if you like zakat says rather than a rich person doing that and hold holding that money up yeah rather than that being a good thing that grows it will be a negative that money will decrease because there is a certain amount of that money that they're not using they have to then give to to charity yeah. uh, and pay for those so people are incentivized to to you know to spend and you know um i'm not an economic expert but yeah. Yeah. there is a phrase around the velocity of money yeah. and you know uh, a, an economy where there is a high velocity of money, meaning money is changing hands quickly, things yeah. are being passed around. That's a healthier economy yeah. than when money is being hoarded up. Yeah. So zakat, the system of zakat, the the behavior it incentivizes, how it does it. I think another point as well. Some critics say, oh, you know, the the, the level of zakat is is very low. Yeah, maybe five, yeah, you know, a few percent. Yeah, but. There's there's a, you know, and I know this from a scholar in our community who's written a book on this, yeah. that is based on, that is just a guidance, that level, the yes. level of zakat. If for the needs of the nation, that rate needs to be increased, it can be. It can be, and I think it has been previously as well. So zakat is a framework that can be adjusted to run based on what the economy yeah. needs. You know, Just like any other country can set its rate of income tax, sim- yeah. similar as zakat, the actual rate can be adjusted.
0: Yeah. And these things that you've mentioned, they all have a bearing on... The issue that we're facing, particularly when I look at the UK, it's issue around sort of high inflation. And that is what the government is trying hard to sort of bring down. And everyone is feeling it. Um, These principles that we're talking about, and and the third principle we're going to come into, what we've sort of alluded to already, I'll come into it now, actually, because it all ties together. And so the, the second caliph says here, that is thirdly, Islam forbids the lending of money on interest yep. it says the institution the institution of interest also results in accumulating wealth in comparatively fewer hands it enables people with established custom and connections to go on multiplying their wealth practically without limit to the detriment of the rest of the community um, and so these these sort of these these principles that we 've just talked about they all have a bearing in sort of resulting in sort of yeah. inf- inflation, basically, and they they, can, they, they also bring the, up they can bring it down.
1: They can and not, and and also we think about it as at the individual individual level, right? Bring that up to a country level. if If a country is taking a high interest bearing loan from a superpower, with conditions attached to it. Yeah. That plays into that superpowers hands. They're going to, you know, they've the the country will never be able to pay off the debt because the interest payments alone are so much mm-hmm. and you know at the same time there'll be conditions tagged along. Again, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. So the more you reflect on interest, the more you realize, you know, that it's it's a the root of a lot of issues. And to be fair actually, the other um usury as a concept uh, has existed in other faiths. You know, Christianity has talked about it as well. But the thing is now, well, first of all, Islam is so explicit about it. Right. But also in the modern times, that term usury is only seen to mean very high or overly high interest. So, um, you know, the Christian world has, has kind of changed its definition of what uh, of, of what interest should be banned, whereas Islam has been absolutely Quite explicit up. on yeah. it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, which you've made me sort of remember an article that I, that I came across um fantastic article it was published in the al-hakam um uh, um it's published by the Amdi muslim community if you go to alhakam.org and the article was titled a brief economic analysis of ramadan um it was published on the 14th of april 2023 it was around about ramadan this year um and um fantastic because the author basically looks he analyzes it's sort of almost a sort of an economic impact assessment of sort of how the effect of Ramadan on society on, on, on a macroeconomic level as well as a microeconomic level and um it, it, honestly, it's honestly a fantastic fantastic sort of um you know perspective or insight that he gives he says and he, and to be, and what he does is the author um yeah the author refers to another of this of this article uh, uh it's it from a gentleman from Australia who who wrote this article And he's also drawing inspiration from the works of the second caliph uh, in in another sort of speech, uh, which has now been published in the book form called The Economic System of Islam, Um, but essentially sort of highlights, um, examines how Ramadan impacts your economy on both a micro and macro level. And he says, um, he takes the example here, he says, the analysis considers the month before Ramadan and and during the month of Ramadan and then the month after it. So Mm -hmm. it's almost three states. And he sort of puts it, sort of gives this sort of an example to sort of what happened during the pandemic. He says the post-pandemic economy has has you know, suffered from sort of restrictions, um, unspent sort of stimulus money, and all sorts of inflationary issues. So he makes he draws the parallel, saying, "Well, if you think about it, during Ramadan, um, the consumption sort of declines naturally because people yeah. are fasting, and if, you know, and if they're not fasting, because obviously there are various reasons why one may not be able to." at the very least, their focus is towards spirituality. Yeah. So this sort of leads to, if you think about it, behaviorally, from an economic point of view, it leads to lower demand and there's almost a, 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 a stability in prices. He mm-hmm. says after Ramadan, the inflation sort of decreases and the purchasing power is regained and the economy sort of stabilises. Um, so almost as if, and, and, and I never, I, I'm, I'm not doing justice to this article at mm. all, but it, it's quite amazing that it's almost as if, I mean, you know, we've looked at Ramadan from all sorts of angles. Yeah. I think bar this one, where almost Ramadan is almost acting as sort of a cooling economic
1: off. cycle, almost. Yeah. yeah. What was said about the month before Ramadan then, in terms of the? Well, years.
0: I think it, well, he's drawing upon the fact that it's almost used as a sort of a cooling off. It's almost like a sort of a turbine effect, yeah. sort of cooling off, and, and the situation maybe preceding Ramadan, where you know inflation may be riding high. For, for example, it, not, yeah. it's not necessary, but during that month, it naturally, it will go low. Because of yeah, the yeah. demand is not there.
1: Let me lay a, sp- a sort of a spiritual view on that same analogy then, which is also for for the rich to be cognizant of the poor and to really experience what they go through. They have to really experience what they go through yeah. for them to have the empathy and want to te- uh, want to um, you know distribute their own wealth. They need to feel what it's like to be hungry. They need to feel what it's like to not be able to fulfill that yeah. you know, desire to have food. And I think Ramzan, from a spiritual point of view, also is, is a cycle in a way. Is it, it means no matter what your wealth, you experience hunger. You know, and, and maybe if we think about the extreme of kings and people have lived very lavish lives, they probably have never had to feel hungry. It sounds really silly to say it, but it's actually, you know, that's that's the reality. Whereas this is a self-imposed in a way as part of a religious practice to, to really appreciate what people go through. Yeah. And then if you think about the teaching of, of Ramazan, it highlights so often the, the benefits of when you break your fast, feed others, when you have a feast, invite the poor, etc. It's so many examples. So yeah. there's there's that economic cycle as well, and then underneath it as well. There's yeah. an underpinning spiritual thing, which is taking those rich people yeah. and actually putting them through some experience where they get a feel for what it's like for others. And I think that's another thing that in our society, sadly, is probably missing. It's yeah. like, you know, is there a real empathy for, for yeah. the poor?
0: Yeah, I mean, it just, yeah, it's a shame. Like we've said it many a time in the past, people sort of a uh, are, are very scared uh, i say the common man sort of within western society is very scared of islam um and yet the solutions that it provides if it was just given a chance you know it, it could it could do wonders in this latter sort of part of the show we're going to focus on uh, the speech de- delivered by his holiness as it Muslim, the fifth caliph at the concluding um session of the annual convention this year um, where he talked about Islam's sort of responsibilities towards the poor and, and needy in society. But before we do go into that analysis, um, there is a, a very an interesting clip that I came across in, in sort of the, the research for this show. And it was actually a question that was put to the, f- the late fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Tahir Ahmed, in which he was asked, um, is it permissible for the government to seize someone's land and redistribute it to the poor? Um, and which the answer that he gives has quite a, a. It really is sort of ties in with sort of the theme around what the government's responsibilities are, which we're going to talk about um, after the clip. So let's have a listen. A
2: professor. <coughs> in many of the underdeveloped countries, there is a tendency to introduce land reforms whereby land over and above a certain limit is confiscated by the state with the view to redistribute among the poor. I would like to request Hazur to explain the Islamic point of view in this connection. Well, Islam does give a major power to states to manipulate the wealth in a manner as some people are not totally deprived of the collective benefits of the state. So it cannot be ruled out but it is not based on uh, the communistic philosophy of dialectic materialism. Other principles govern this. But now what is happening in these states to whom which you are referring is not this. It is not the welfare of the poor which is motivating this. It is to gain cheap popularity by certain political parties that they vie with each other to play havoc with the concept of of. Uh, personal, private property and uh, the right of holding private private property. So, they are not honest about it, because they, such movements are generally supported by uh, the bourgeois, industrialists, and the great tradesmen. So, instead of hitting at the industry and trade, they go only to hit the farmer who is defenceless as compared to them. And they go on reducing the number of uh, acreage of holding per person, per capita. And this, should, this is generally not done with any wisdom, it, because the ulterior motive is that of gaining cheap political power, cheap political popularity. The result is that such uh, political parties... Do not pay attention to what would result from this. Would the economy gain or suffer? Are the conditions ripe for such a mayor or not? That is the one main problem which is left out of their consideration. The result is that sometimes such mayors result in smaller and comparatively less production than previously. And sometimes it so happens that economically a country is not on a stage where further division of land would be advisable. For instance, when the state is not capable of running, maintaining, and improving large-scale farming, collective farming, with collective machinery, And when, as an alternative, in the private sector, the farmers have uh, a sizable acreage of land, which can be developed in the modern terms, they are capable of owning their own tractors and farm machinery and imply the most modern terms, most modern uh, uh, inventions in this regard, the production per acre in that case would be much higher. Than the production of an ordinary farmer who have who has a smaller holding, who is incapable, economically incapable, of uh, owning a tractor or owning farm machinery or implying such other inventions of the modern times as are uh, conducive to larger production. Now, this is exactly as the state as prevailing in Pakistan and in some other backward countries if the go if a political party for the sake of cheap popularity further divides the land holding and just arbitrarily takes the land of uh, uh, chunks of land from some larger holders and distributes it to the ordinary farmers as their own number 1 the problem would be created of this uh, improved farm far, improved style of farming those landowners who were capable of running farms on modern scientific basis would be destroyed and these smallholders will be totally incapable of running the farms on modern basis. Overall production of the country would fall to a great measure and in ultimate terms the poor of the country would be left poorer off. Because without production, you can't uh, improve your state of uh, your your, your way of life. uh, You know, it's impossible that the overall production is, is decreasing in the country and the lot of a common man is improving. This is not possible. So it would be a big loss to the nation as such. Such measures have been proved to be futile and extremely dangerous and even fatal when carried out in the modern times by some uh, more powerful states than Pakistan and India, for instance. In China, the so-called Green Revolution almost destroyed the entire achievements of the revolution uh, of, of Mao Zedong. That Green Revolution has become a horror word in China because some drastic measures were adopted by the government to improve the farming on the basis of dialectic materialism and they failed because the economic situation was not right. So so low that those in power will also take sides with their relatives and friends while distribution of benefits are, are concerned and those who go into collective farming would try their best to cheat the other partners. So when the moral standard and education standard is so low, how can you go for the collective farming, which is the only answer left? If you reduce the number of holdings, then the only answer to improve the farming situation would be to go for collective farming, so that collectively in a, a larger number of farmers participate in a big farm though their own personal holdings would yet would remain to be the small holding but the farm collectively would become big so they will be capable of uh, employing the modern techniques you know that is the idea but there are other hindrances in the way of uh, putting this idea into practice in these countries so it is against wisdom not only religion What religion says is that do what is good, I mean, the governments are required to do what is good for the people. If a measure which is carried out in the name of the people is not good for the people, then to that extent it would be religious. But in principle, it cannot be said that the government is not permitted to interfere in the land holdings. For, for any reason. In fact, if, if somebody holds large tracts of land, which he cannot put to proper use, which he cannot control, with the result that that large holding is causing collective loss of the people in terms of production, according to the, to, to the Islamic principles, the government not only can interfere in this matter, but it is the duty of the government to interfere and take take away that much land which he cannot control. And this I am speaking on the authority of Ahadudah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam himself. He said that you are permitted only to hold that much land which you can properly control. And you will not be permitted to hold large land, landings waste, wastefully just because to you want to satisfy your avarice. So there are clear-cut principles and the general principles which would uh, provide us guidelines in this regard. But the present measures which you are referring to are not uh, healthy measures, in my opinion.
0: We've just heard there, uh, quite a laboratory answer given by uh, the late 4th Caliph of the Amni Muslim community, Hazrat mr Ahmed, when asked the question, is it permissible for the government to seize someone's land and redistribute it to the poor? Um, so... I mean, Arif, I know we talked about this a little bit before in the, in the early half of the show, that I think the beauty of Islam is such that it's the balance of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're going we're to analyse um, the current Khalifa's sort of address um, in a moment, where he talks a lot about sort of the responsibilities of the states and what they have. Um, but from the answer, uh, from what we've just heard, I mean, the main takeaway there is that the government should do what is good for the people, essentially.
1: Yeah, and also the application of justice as yeah. well, right? So yeah. if if you go down that route of I'm going to take everyone, everyone's going to have, everything is going to, all property is going to be seized and controlled by the state and they will give exactly the same amount to every person, yeah. almost like a communist-type approach, yeah. that will cause a, comp- you know, a a lot of unrest in society. And it has done when it's been when it, you know yeah. even implemented. His Holiness mentioned the Green Revolution in China, and that also had elements of inequality where... You know, there was this new revolution with new equipment, but the wealthiest farmers could afford it. The poorest could, poor ones were not able to um, you know, afford the more uh, expensive crops and equipment. So again, disparity, inequality. So that's what Islam looks to focus on is actually people are do have different levels just based on you know, where they've come from. And it's more not rather than trying to abolish that. It's actually trying to just nurture the right environment where, where things are redressed afterwards, if you like.
0: And I think and, and that's it. I think you've the nail on the head there. It's about nurturing the right environment. And I mean, when we move, we move to, to the current caliph's um, concluding address uh, at the annual convention uh, just a few weeks ago, where he talked about the rights um, for looking after the poor. And in sort of, in sort of the outset of his, of his address, he says that the rights can only be truly established when mankind realises that there is a higher power who is watching over every act of ours and that we are answerable to him. But that really is the crux. Yeah, isn't I, I think that's
1: amazing because you can design whatever economic system or tax system you want, but if people are acting dishonestly, then that system collapses. and And think about the amount of famous incidents of corporate espionage, corporate fraud, you know, potential governments being involved in different fraud. and And how much, how often do we hear that? You know, some of the third world or developing countries, one of the biggest issues is around corruption and things like this so no matter how well designed your economic system is if people do not feel accountable ultimately that is a huge problem and that's something you can't address whereas the holy quran emphasizes that every action is seen and you're you're told to you know give charity such that your left hand doesn't even see what the right is doing so Mm. it encourages behaviors and accountability in a way that no economic system or government can can do
0: which when you think about it based on what literally what you've just said is that you know that would resolve strikes, in a way, almost overnight, because it's the double standard or it's the, you know, it's this this feeling of, well, you know, you've, you you know, you've allowed to do this to one part of society, yeah. but you can't do this to another. And that's where those feelings sort of come from. Absolutely. It's, the, it's
1: injustice. In, yeah. His Holiness has spoken about this so many times as well in terms of even the wars in the world. Yeah. Normally, the initial thing that causes this is injustice whether it's seizing of land whether it's paying someone a different amount of money or treating them in different ways you know or having um you know some kind of fascist regime that iron, that singles out a certain section of society and doesn't treat them equitably that that's where these these conflicts start to become that sense of injustice yeah
0: so turning to his speech then so he, he quotes um quite earlier on this particular verse very powerful verse from the holy quran um from chapter 9 verse 60 where the English translation is as follows: The arms are only for the poor and the needy, and for those employed in connection therewith, and for those whose hearts are to be reconciled, and for the freeing of slaves, and for those in debt, and for the and for the cause of Allah, and for the wayfarer, and ordinance from Allah, and Allah is all-knowing, the wise. And this is um, one of those verses where sort of uh, sort of literally a few sentences and yet packed full, yeah. of of you Know the various demographics have sort of been highlighted there. Um, and if if fact, I'll just go through sort of turn by turn, just various because I think it's quite a quite, quite poignant the various um groups that have been mentioned in this verse. Um, we take for example, um, where it says here that the first mentioned class, i.e., the poor, signifies those r- broken uh, with poverty or disease, uh, whereas the second class, i.e., the needy, signifies those rendered motionless through want of means. Um, which I think uh, just on a sort of going off a slight tangent there, but even I'm thinking for those disabilities as well yeah quite easily into that, mm-hmm. but it says it gives examples the unemployed or those possessing the ability to work by lacking the means thereof, so just in, even within those two categories you've you've covered quite a lot of base. then it says the words where it says those employed in connection therewith signify those employed in collecting the cigars so you obviously you mm-hmm. alluded to to the to that charity in the first half of the show. So it just shows that there's even there's an administrative element yeah. here, which is one interesting. Um, this is interesting here, but and though it mentions a group of people in this verse, and those whose hearts are to be reconciled, and it says means those hearts um, uh, which are sincerely inclined towards Islam, but who, owing to their having been disconnected with their former society or family, stand in need of monetary help. Right. So that's quite fascinating that there's almost like a f- fund there, effectively for sort of newcomers to Islam, which. Yeah. When you think about it, obviously being born within Islam, I can't really appreciate that, but if you're coming to the faith... There's a lot you have to yeah. give up, I guess.
1: Maybe your family's cut you off. Maybe you were, yeah. you know, if a, f- a woman converts and maybe her sole source of income previously was from her family and now yeah. she doesn't have that or a yeah. man, then, you know, that then, you know, opens up economic issues as well for them yeah. or boycotts which would have occurred, did occur in the early days of Islam as yeah. well, Islamic history. I t-
0: it's quite fascinating that it's actually accounted for that. I right. think well, that's quite remarkable. It's right. such
1: a comprehensive teaching. Like you said, that single verse, you unpack it. There's so many things there. Yeah.
0: The, the verse includes... Um, slaves signifies, obviously, besides actual slaves, captives and such persons are called upon to play blood money to secure their freedom. Um, the expression for those in debt, which is quite self explanatory, but means those who are unable to pay their debts um, and those who have suffered an extraordinary loss in trade, which that's remarkable in yeah, its own right. You exactly. think about now.
1: Yeah, the government, you're right. So if you think about, you know, government bringing in specific schemes to deal with COVID and things mm. like this. And the Quran's already talked about this 1,500 years ago nearly around how yeah. you need a pot of money to deal with uh, disasters or uh, economic shocks.
0: Yeah. And then the last sort of part of this verse, it says, and for those in, in the cause of, of Allah, imply every good or pious work commanded by God, which, you know, when you think about it, it then there's nothing left really. And you think about the group's that are that, are, that are in, in, you know wanting things. It's even the, even wayfarers. The term wayfarer has been sort of included, includes those stranded on a journey for lack of money, or those who travel in search of knowledge uh, or for promoting social relations. So you can see it's just it's just remarkable yeah. that you know the these various acts, uh, various groups of people that have been included. Um, this is not really a, there's not really a section of society that's been left out, which I think. Is and remarkable. it's
1: not just theoretical. These are the principles that underpinned you know' the, definitely the early Islamic history. over time, maybe not all of the principles have been applied, but this this was not just a theory. This is the principles that were used to build the early the early Islamic societies. These were the founding principles.
0: Yeah His Holiness talked about this verse, and he says that God has spoken about those who are in need within society. and he says the verse makes clear. That it's a, it is the government's duty to ensure the needs of these people are met, without them even asking. So he says even prisoners should be spent on. He gives the example, um, which um, I mean that, that I mean that it's to live in a day and age where where people you know feel. Nowadays we have to sort of cry out yeah. for 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 you know for for found in need, but you know we're talking about a time where even if people who who may feel shame in even yes. asking for it i think islam. you've hit the
1: key word dignity right islam yeah. really emphasizes dignity yeah. i mean yeah. i saw something the other day about a, a uh, one of these uh, food banks and they said to make people feel less you know less um, embarrassed about it they would have a very small fee there would be a, a payment aspect just to give them dignity so yeah. they don't feel like they're just taking from yeah. you know from charity so i think that is a key principle in getting out of the cycle we were speaking about earlier
0: yeah yeah we we spoke about strikes national strikes before and um, his Holiness even said that in today's world, many professionals strike with the complaint that they're not being paid enough. Um, and he says, His Holiness says that all of these issues arise because the rights of the poor are not being met. Um, he cites some sort of hadith, some narrations um, of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of God be upon him, where he says that one who toils to help the needy and the widow is like the one who partakes in jihad hmm. in the way of Allah, which Kind of blows out of the water, really, in terms of this notion of uh, sort of a jihad, where it's like I know we've talked about this many a time, Klingon style, Mm. you know, warfare, Warfare. like we, you know, we're just up for a ruckus, basically. But the fact that the founder of Islam has sort of equated helping the needy and the widow, not mentioned anything about they must be Muslim. There's no criteria in there at all. But by helping them is as if one is partaking in jihad. Yeah, which just, is
1: ultimately means a struggle, isn't it? It's yeah. like one of the ultimate struggle is trying to bring some kind of uh, equality to the society around us. Yeah. And uh, despite yeah. all the inequality.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there was, and, and it gives another sort of, it quotes another hadith. Or a very famous companion of the Holy Prophet, um, Peace and Blessings of God be upon him. This um, name of the companion was Hazrat Abu Huraira. He narrates that the worst that he's relating, that he heard the Holy Prophet say, that the worst of meals is the meal to which the rich are invited and the poor and the poor are neglected. Um, and His Holiness remarked that as all Amdi Muslims should ensure that they should invite the poor to their meals and events too. He said it was due to this teaching that the Prophet, Peace and Blessings of God be upon him, that the companions, his companions, would always try to alleviate the pain and suffering of those in need, um, and so it, when you think about that, it's such a simple act. But by doing that act, it sort of changes the whole sort of social dynamics of society. Yeah. Yep.
1: You know? And I think this is a unique aspect of Islam. It's that um, you know the Holy Prophet peace be upon him was that you know we we can see him how he lived and taught. At the different stages of his life. There were times when he didn't have many material possessions. There were times when he had a huge amount of material possessions. And you can look at the way the different stages, he provided a model for people to live despite, you know, depending on all of those different ranges. So those who have means, he gave a great example of how to give those to charity, how to share the wealth. And and you know, yeah. here's a great example about whenever you have a meal, invite, you know, share it amongst the poor as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. There was a really interesting point in the speech, um that I have I, to be honest, I I learned for the first time, really, he says. He gives he, he he cites an example from the time of the second caliph after the Holy Prophet, um, peace and blessings of God be upon him. the the name of the caliph was uh, Hazrat Umar, um, and I would say that you know his his sort of his period of his his caliphate lasted for about I think it was about approximately twelve years. There was mass expansion with under under his sort of leadership. It was under his leadership there were various sort of. um sort of administrative functions were put into place, even sort of like a, a postal system was put in. But um, a census was census, put in.
1: Yeah, I, that was the first time I'd heard this as well. Yeah. So specifically, yeah.
0: He remarks here, he says that he says that even European historians admit that the first census ever taken was by the second caliph, Hazard He said they, the European historians also admit that the, this very first census was not to seize the wealth of its citizens, but to establish a system for their sustenance. Other governments take a census to make sacrificial lambs out of their people and to procure military services. However, Hazadoma did not take a census for this purpose, but did so to provide them with food and to ascertain the number of people and how much food would be required. Therefore, after taking the census, all people would receive sustenance under a designated system and a monthly allowance would be given to fulfil all other remaining necessities. Uh, which it, remarkable historical it's point! The
1: founding though. of the welfare welfare state. Yeah. If you want to do a study in Islamic teaching around the welfare, and and you know how you have a society where the poor are looked after, you look at the the Islamic Empire under the second Caliph. How's uh, the Hazrat-
0: Yeah, uh, phenomenal. Because uh, I, I, I won't even draw upon obviously my history lessons at school when you are know, King so and so was doing the you know the Doomsday Book and all sorts of things, trying to work out how much has everyone got so that the king can take a share. So it just, it really does put it into perspective, basically. But alas, I'm afraid that's it for this week's edition to Pathway to Peace. Now, we're back the same time next week. A big thank you to Arif Khan for his analysis and assessment of the key issues. But before we end, here is a quote from the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Muzi Ghulam Ahmed, the awaited Messiah Madhi Mahdi foretold to come in the latter days. The following quote, taken from a concluding address at the annual convention in Guardian on the 30th of December 1897, gives us an insight towards the level of empathy and care he had for his fellow man, and that we too should aspire to this if we are to look after the rights of this less fortunate than us in society. He says, The fact of the matter is that my friends are a part of me as are my limbs. We observe in our daily lives that even the smallest of parts, such as a finger, for example, if subject to pain, agitates and distresses the entire body. God exalted is well aware that in exactly the same way, constantly at every moment, I forever remain anxious and concerned about whether my friends are in a state of ease and comfort. This sympathy and compassion which I feel is not the result of any artificial effort or unnaturally. In fact, just as a mother is incessantly absorbed in ensuring that each and every one of her children are in peace and comfort, no matter their number, I find my heart replete in the way of God with the same tenderness and compassion for my friends. This sympathy is so burning that when I receive a letter from any one of my friends alluding to a grief or illness with which they are suffering, my disposition becomes restless and disturbed and I am taken aback by grief. As our dear ones increase, this grief increases in equal proportion. There is no hour in which I am free from some form of apprehension and grief because from among the vast number of my friends, One or the other is afflicted by some form of grief or pain. When they inform me of their worries, my heart becomes perturbed and restless. I cannot describe the amount of time that I suffer from worries. Since there is no being other than God Almighty who can deliver one from such worries and concerns, I engage myself constantly in prayers. The foremost prayer that I offer is for my friends to be saved from grief and worry because the thought of them overwhelms me with anguish and agony. Then I pray in the general sense that if there is anyone who suffers from some form of grief and hardship, may God the Almighty grant them deliverance. My entire effort and every ounce of my passion moved me to supplicate before God the Exalted. Much hope can be gained from the acceptance of prayer.